Hello and welcome to the Spectator's Book Club podcast. I'm Sam Leith, the literary editor of The Spectator, and this week I'm joined by Kate Lister, who's a lecturer in English and History at Leeds Trinity University and also has risen to fame by curating the blog, social media feed and all-round phenomenon that is Whores of Yore. Her new book is called Harlots, Whores and Hackabouts, A History of Sex for Sale, which is a sort of lavishly illustrated and thoughtful survey, really, of the history of prostitution from prehistory to pretty much the modern day. Kate, welcome. Hello. Hello. It's a very, it's a very big topic. Oh, it's huge, isn't it? There's a lot of ground covered there, isn't there? What, what made you think, I'll just do all of it? Oh, I think it's because you're sort of faced with the, like, well, where do you want to go with it? You either have to accept that you can't possibly do an entire global history. You couldn't possibly be exhaustive. Or if you would, it would be like an encyclopedia. Or do you go, do you focus on something, you know, like Hallie Rubenholz the Five, when she focused on, on the lives of those women and you can go into absolute minute detail. And I, what I wanted to do is kind of give something like a sort of panoramic view, even if that came at the expense maybe of being able to delve in the details. I wanted people to be able to pick up the book and sort of get a real sense of how things have changed culture to culture time to time so yeah it's broad <laughs> it is and well you know the cliche which you address in your introduction is you know the oldest profession is that so no it's not it's not the oldest profession because there were cultures and people in prehistory and still today that don't have money that don't use money so therefore don't have professions but in order to have professions you've got to have of money and there are anthropologists that were doing research in the 50s that located a number of different people around the world who have absolutely no experience of people selling sex for money it's just not because they don't have jobs but what they do what they did find was that the figure of the midwife and the medicine man was universal so it would probably be truer to say that the oldest profession in the world is midwifery or being a doctor but I think that what we can say is that um, selling sex is as old as money itself yeah. So it's very, very ancient. And you start with what to me is absolutely fascinating, the discovery that the, you know, as, as we'd probably call it now, the erasure of sex mm. workers, like also goes way back. You know, the Epic of Gilgamesh, as we've got it, you know, had the naughty bits cut out. Yes, it did. Not in the original, in the original tablets. So the tablets were first translated in the 19th century by a scholar called George Smith. And he was one of the few people in the world at the time that could translate ancient Assyrian Babylonian tablets, a very, very rare skill to have. And he started translating fragments of tablets that had been brought back from Iraq and he was in the British Library. And the first one that he managed to translate was a a story about a flood. And to him, he thought that he discovered a corroborating account of Noah's flood. So he was ridiculously excited. He's like, oh my God, I've just proven the Bible is true. But one of the stories that it was in there is the story of a harlot called Shampat, who is sent by the king to have sex with a wild man called Andikio. And they have sex for an entire week, which is some going. And then, but when they finish, Andikio is no longer wild. He's civilized. He can no longer talk to animals and, and all kinds of things like that. And it's a really interesting and powerful story. But poor old George Smith was so shocked by it. It was the one story that he doesn't translate 
fully into English for, for, for the audience. He, he, he sort of made some very brief reference to it. I think it was in Latin, kind of very much pushed it up. And it wasn't until the 20th century when that story was actually translated in full. And I, I just think that's really interesting that he was so excited, excited to find these ancient stories and he managed to translate all of them, but not that one. That was just a bit too out there for him. Now, the, the question of that, the status of that story, I'm interested in going back to it because it gives us a clue, at least, as to Babylonian attitudes to prostitution. And, yeah. you know, is there a, a sort of secure, stable sense of what we get from it, of how this, this sort of figure, Shamhat, is she called? Shamhat. Shamhat. Yeah. You know, how she's presented in the text. So this is something that scholars of ancient Babylonian Assyria, um, it, it's a real point of contention because really all we've got to try and understand uh, sexual attitudes and attitudes to sex work are these fragmented tablets which have been translated and we are trying to un understand their connotations and their context and it's really difficult. <clears throat> and there are scholars that believe quite firmly that Shamhat was what we might call a sacred, a sacred woman, a sacred prostitute. And there are others that say, nope, she was just a bit slutty and still quite sacred. And the, that's kind of the argument that people are trying to tease out. What we can say is that Shamhat associates herself with the goddess Ishtar and her temple. And she tries to take Adikyo to the temple for more worship. So she's definitely associated with the temple. She's definitely associated with the goddess Ishtar. But the question is, well, what does that mean? Was she selling sex in the temple? Was she selling sex near the temple? Was she selling sex at all? So there's lots and lots of, it's, it's very unstable. But what we do know, at least you can get it from the tablets, is that she is identified as a harlot. She's identified as somebody that has sex uh, for money, for gain. She's ordered to go and do this by the king. And she's a holy woman. Do we know contextually what, what you know, the word, whatever it is in, in that ancient language is, what, what that word harlot would be? No, we don't know. The word itself is karkid. That's the, the ancient word. And there's so much debate around, well, exactly what does that mean? Because, and we can see that today with similar debates that exist. Like if I said the word courtesan to you or escort or working girl or prostitute, they all carry very different connotations, don't they? Like even the word whore, that can mean someone that's selling sex for money. It can also mean someone that just has a lot of sex. It can also just be an insult. So what we're trying to do is people are trying to trying to get at well, what does this word car kid mean how was it used how was it understood but i think that what we can say is that this is a very ancient creation myth where shamhat is identified as car kids she is using sex for for gain and she's a a, a sacred woman it's probably about as much as you can say about it's it a civilizing influence a, a very civilizing influence yeah she's so good in bed she knocks the wildness out of him <laughs> I mean, in the sort of other ancient and mythological treatments, because I'm sort of interested in getting back to the root of this to start with, can you explain a bit about how much this idea of sacred prostitution, yeah. rather than, say, you know, not a profession, but a calling, you know, if you like, mm. um, you know, is that something that's common across the different cultures and different ancient situations you're looking at? Again, it's difficult to say 
absolutely with this stuff because the sources are so ancient. What we can say is that there's lots of reference to it. Herodotus writes about it. He has a real pop at the ancient Babylonians. And he says that there's this custom where before all women get married, they will go to the temple and basically have sex with anyone who gives them a shekel and asks them to. And that's part of their tradition. What we have to bear in mind is Herodotus is what we might politely call an unreliable narrator. Yeah, the giant ants turned up <laughs> yes, disappointingly you know. not to exist. So, like, was that true? But then people would look to his work, and then you start seeing this this story popping up all over the place in ancient in ancient texts. And the question is, well, how much do you want to believe it? And something else that 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 really interests me is that, well, maybe we're looking for the wrong thing because we inevitably bring our own judgments and understanding around that word prostitution to it, and and it's so laden with morality and judgment and stigma in our own modern culture that it may I think it makes us very difficult to try and understand how it was understood in other cultures because we're always dragging that with us you know it's very difficult to kind of square that but we know that sex and religion go hand in hand we know that there is we only got to look to India and the tradition of the Devdesi and they were very ancient tradition of women that were sold to the goddess Yelima and once upon a time they were held in very high regard and they were uh, courtesans and musicians and artists and they would have very wealthy patrons who paid them and paid the temple and sex was very much a part of that. Today, after British colonisation and the British turned up to go, well, I don't think that's on, they made it illegal. And now the Devdesi, they're pushed to the margins, they're very, very vulnerable and they mostly make a living by selling sex and they, a lot of them are in a lot of danger. I mean, what, is, is that a sort of long time effect essentially a kind of overhang from the importation of Protestantism to India via the empire. I think that you can certainly look at it that way. There's always more complex things going on, but what happened was when the British began their colonial rule of India, they were quite horrified by the tradition of the Devdesi because they viewed it within their terms. They viewed it through their eyes and they viewed prostitution as quote the great social evil so they just couldn't square what they saw happening with their own values so they they made it illegal that societies jumped up to try and abolish the practice and then suddenly the devdesi are criminalized they're very vulnerable whereas once upon a time they were revered and esteemed and were sort of like not yeah holy they were and it but that attitude changed when they were criminalised and then they're pushed to the margins and then they have, they're forced more and more to make their living just by selling sex, yeah. which is still the case today. To go back to ancient Greece, there's this captivating figure and the book's full of these, these very sort of, you know, powerful or interesting or complex, you know, women who sort of stand out. And one of them is Phryne, who's this... Yeah. Um, archetypal figure. Can you tell us about Phryne as, as, and what she tells us about ancient Greek attitudes? She does. She's uh, she's kind of one of the the legendary courtesans of the ancient world. Sorry, am I, am I pronouncing her right? Is she Phryne or Phryne? I think she's Phryne. I think Freeney. she's Phryne. But she was a woman that had a lot of names, actually. So she's uh, Phryne means toad, which was apparently because she had yellow skin, but that might have been a joke. We're not, we're not quite sure, but that wasn't her real name either. But she was... So one of the interesting things when you look at the history of sex work, and it's still the, the case today, is class and money play into this so much. So a woman like Freeney uh, attains celebrity status, massive influence. She had so much money 
that when the walls of Thebes were destroyed by Alexander the Great, she actually offered to have them rebuilt herself on the condition that they put a plaque on the wall saying, destroyed by Alexander the Great, rebuilt by Freeney the Whore. And they said no, obviously. <laughs> that's, that's, I mean, that's a power move, isn't it? That, that's, that's well done. Oh, Leveling up. Yes. So she had so much money and so much influence. And she was a woman that poets wrote about. Apparently the, the statue of Venus of, I can't remember, is the first statue of a woman from Venus of Knossos, I think it was, was modelled on her. So she was this hugely great, very wealthy, influential courtesan who was, I suppose, in a way, aspirational. Actually, not in, not in our way. She was aspirational because she had more freedom than Greek wives would have, than most women would have, but that came at a price. Was she born free, do we know? I don't know, actually, if she was. Uh, there's not a lot of that's known about her early life. But I suppose one of the things we have to remember is that for every Freeney, there were thousands and thousands of people that didn't live that life, that did live a life in sexual servitude and slavery. And that was quite common in ancient Greece. Yeah. I mean, slaves, uh, I think I'm right in saying, aren't I, that, that you know, you, you, you were, as a master, entitled mm. to use your slaves however you liked. Yep, that seems to be the case. Yep, absolutely it does. And poor people might sell their children to the brothels. There are um, there are records of that. So we know that a, a contemporary of Freeney was another woman, and I'll probably pronounce this wrong, called Nyera. And we know that she was sold to a brothel at a very young age, about the age of eight. But she also became quite famous, but she was still had to work at this brothel and she was still under the control of the, of the brothel keeper. She had to try and buy her freedom. So it's a, a strange parallel world where, like, at one time they're, they're in sexual slavery, but in another way they have so much more freedom and agency than other Greek women had because they're allowed in the public sphere, they're allowed in the world of men. They have a lot of control over powerful men. Freeney certainly did. And she was a celebrity. She was worshipped and her name's still known today. So it's this real state of cognitive dissidence where at one hand, you're looking at the absolute wretchedness of forced sexual slavery. But there is a weird freedom in that, in that very patriarchal world that severely disadvantaged all women. It's a strange one to try and get your head around and navigate because it, it resists the easy binary definitions of, well, you're a courtesan and you're a slave because kind of all these things are true at the same time. It's, it's, yeah, it's trying to navigate it is very difficult with modern eyes. Did the Romans change the situation? I mean, was there a, a different attitude to slavery? We know they had a different attitude to homosexuality, but, you know, they had slaves. They, you know, would have had prostitutes. Well, they, lo lots of things were different. I suppose one of the different things about it is that the Romans did regard it uh, as being more shameful. Not buying, selling, obviously. And they relegated the sex workers to a category called the infams, which are, yeah, or the infamous, basically. And that included, like, gladiators, actors, people that were on the stage, people that were in the public uh, domain, and they were barred from certain public rights and duties, and very much sex work, sex workers were part of this. But again, it's... So, so we know that people were born into slavery, were sold into sexual slavery, but there's a lot of evidence that, that not... I mean, if you look at the brothels in Pompeii, for example, 
the brothel in Pompeii. There are names scratched on that of the people that worked there, and some of them have got family names, which shows that they weren't slaves. They were free people. They were freeborn. So again, it's a really complex world where all these things exist at the same time. You could at once be celebrated and earn a certain amount of independence by selling sex, but then it could also be absolutely harrowing and terrible. Do you say that, which is kind of extraordinary to me, that, that there's a suggestion that Romulus and Remus... Uh, yes. That, that in fact, you know, Rome may, may not have been built in a day, but it was built on sex work. Yes. I, do you know, I think you could probably say that anyway. I think civilization has been built on sex work in one way or another. But yeah, so the Romulus and Remus myth that they were raised by a she-wolf, that was the foundation myth of Rome. Oh, it's very, very interesting and honourable. Well, one of the things that, that isn't as widely known is that Lupa or Lupinalia, sorry for all the Latin speakers butchering the language, um, that means she-wolf, and that was slang for prostitutes. The, the wolf, uh, the brothels were known as wolf dens, and sex workers were known as wolves. And it has been suggested that the wolf mother that raised Romulus and Remus was not a literal wolf, but was a harlot. And that that has been hushed up by the great and the good of Rome. Maybe that's just a slander. Maybe that's, you know, a Roman conspiracy theory. But I quite like that one. I think that's really interesting that it was an actual literal she-wolf, that they were raised by a harlot. I like that. Well, obviously, one of the things, you know, you said we read these past myths through our own preconceptions and our ideas. I mean, the, you know, presumably, absolutely the biggest construction that's shaped the way, and at least in the, the West, mm. sex work has been seen is the arrival of Christianity and yeah. certain attitudes that the Christian church took from, I guess, mm. the Middle Ages onwards. I mean, as we know, Jesus himself was a bit more, you know, sex worker positive. But, um, you know, how how did it shape, and and when did it, you know it's it start to sh- shape the stigma that was attached to sex work? I mean, I'm kind of one of the gripping details in this book about where you talk about medieval London is that it says it's the biggest pimp of all was the Bishop of Winchester. <laughs> it's so true. It's yeah, yeah, it was uh, the medieval church. So the the real grip of the church and the later middle ages it starts to become noticeably more anti-woman and anti-sex there starts to be this kind of narrative it's always been there in the background but it really starts to emerge the teachings of augustine and saint jerome and people like that and they're very much just sex is bad women are bad stay away from both of them and part and then so attitudes to sex do start to change uh, they've always been wrapped up in stigma and anxiety but the narrative that sex is bad and women are sinful directly impacts sex work. Of course, it's not just women selling sex at all. It's not just men buying, but predominantly that's what we're dealing with. Um, So the church starts to maintain this sort of strange attitude, which is the official party line is this is awful and terrible and sinful and you're all going to hell. This is awful. But it's also very necessary. They sort of view it as a necessary evil and they defend it on the grounds that, well, if they're aren't brothels if there isn't access to sex men will just do much worse things which generally means that they'll turn to homosexuality or they'll start fornicating and cheating on their wives and things so that's this strange attitude that underpins a lot of attitudes to sex work in medieval europe and out of that 
rises. So in London, sex work was banned from the city, it was pushed outside the city walls into the area of Southwark, which was on the other side of the Thames. That was the, the red light district. And that particular area, uh, I think it's in the 12th century, was under the jurisdiction of the Bishop of Winchester. And so he owned everything going on there. And it was a real refuge for harlots and thieves and anyone that had been booted out of London, just kind of up sticks, went over the Thames and went, all right, I'm here now. And But because he owned all of that, he was in charge of it. He taxed those people, they paid him rent, they paid him subsidies. So he was effect managing sex work in the district of Southwark. And uh, there were laws drawn up, there were rules drawn up about what could happen, who could work in a brothel. There were rules about what they could wear, there was rules about what they could eat, what time they could work, all of these things. And all the time, they're paying money to the bishop. So the bishop is getting money directly from sex work. It was so obvious at the time that these women were known as uh, Winchester geese at the time that's what they were known as the bishop's geese so yeah so the the church was the biggest pimp in london for a good long while <laughs> and that idea i mean in terms of the sort of way in which the state interacts with the existence of sex work mm. and you know one of the things that seems to run through the history is this business of like we'll put them over here there's a sort of zoning <laughs> rules you know there's zoning always rules, there's yeah whatever, you know, the Storyville or there's, yeah. you know, Hawtown or whatever, you know, there's the Red Light District. Does yeah. this absolutely go through history and across cultures? I mean, why is that, do you think? It is. I mean, one thing that's kind of consistent is this real anxiety from the state and authority about what on earth do we do about this? Is this kind of the, the need to interfere, the need to regulate, the need to control and throughout history, we seem to have cycled through various things. So there seems to be, there's phases of absolute not toleration, which is when sex workers are punished and they've been punished by all kinds of horrible things, including death and mutilation, excommunication, torture, fines, jail, all of those things. And then that will kind of dissipate into an uneasy toleration. And then that's normally where zoning starts to come in. And you can see that right from the Middle Ages, in fact, up to present day it still happens, which is where the state says, all right, you can do it, but you can only do it here. You can do it in this area, under these conditions, and at this time. And they try and control everything. And it's, I suppose, it's a way of trying to manage something that is effectively unmanageable. Because one thing that you can tell from looking at the history of sex work, it's obvious, is that no attempt to abolish it has been successful at all. It just, it just so... The idea of zoning is, it's better than outright abolition, but it still doesn't afford the people selling sex a lot of rights. Because you're still, it's still the state saying, you can do it here, you can do it there, and then they're the ones in charge. And if you don't play their game, then you're going to be in a lot of trouble. But yeah, that happens all over the place. So in medieval London, it was in Southwark. And the medieval people, one of the things I do love about them is they were very good at just calling a spade a spade. And they tended to name their streets after exactly what was going on there. So sex work was sold on a street called Grope Cunt Lane. And there was another, uh, another lane called Cock Lane. Uh, there was another one called Horde Lie Down Lane. And so, yeah, so they just, they just did Nice grassy uh, one, that, I expect. <laughs> not, not, not muddy and pebbly. Um, yeah. But I, I love you, you've got some details. Those names get, get kind of bowdlerized, don't they? Yeah, Grope Cunt Lane becomes Grape Lane or Grove Lane. 
and whole lie down becomes like high down and yeah and so it's all carefully sanitized but i i love the idea of medieval people just just oh that broke punt lane that's exactly what we know we know exactly what's happening here <laughs> but yeah zoning is a policy that has been deployed throughout history and it's normally because it helps the state not only regulate it but they can make a lot of money as well yeah there's also these sumptuary laws. I mean, in, in Renaissance Venice, yeah. where, I mean, we should probably talk about the, the wonderfully named Tit Bridge. Um, <laughs> but they, they, their own special shoes. They had to wear yeah. special shoes and special cloaks and a special colour. Yeah, one of the things that you tend to get a lot of as well, as a lot of zoning, is this kind of slightly fraught idea of, yes, but how will we be able to tell the difference between good women and these awful harlots? That is goes to a lot of this and people come up with all kinds of mad ideas in order to like force sex workers to identify themselves publicly uh, in medieval europe that could be things from uh, they were often forced to wear what's known as raid hoods which just means striped so they would have like white and blue striped hoods uh, in venice they were forced to wear bells like lepers approaching there's all kinds of things they were forced to wear or they weren't allowed to wear and in italy in venice one of the things that they wore was a type of shoe called a, sh a shopping or a chopin and it's forerunner of the the modern stiletto these look like those kind of platform things that you know the band suede had in the 70s it's absolutely massive chunky heels and the venetian courtesans would be wearing those and it served a few functions first of all it marked them out as what they were so the state was happy but also because the streets were so muddy it helped lift them up off the road so they didn't get their dress all muddy and and thirdly you know they're about seven foot tall by the time they've got these things on it's, it's very good for business <laughs> <laughs> obviously there are some parts of the world where the personal hang-ups of st augustine didn't reach were attitudes different i mean because your book does range as far as you know edo japan and china you know are, are these places sort of utopian paradises for stigma-free sex work Oh, it would be lovely if they were, but I've yet to find somewhere like that. Any, I think anywhere, especially where the society is capitalist, anywhere the society is patriarchal, uh, the women are disadvantaged in those terms. And it's pre predominantly women that sell sex. Of course, men do too. But those systems tend to disadvantage women. And so they, they do not exist in a sex-free utopia. The attitudes are very, very different. They are. Sex work was accepted as much more as, you know, just part of part of the world that they lived in. But it was still very, very controlled. Uh, in Edo, Japan, they still had areas, zoning areas, the, the pleasure districts that you would have to go to. And they had um, the brothel set up there. But it was very, very much just part of day to day life. And it was and it, again, it's very difficult for us to try and understand uh, through our modern eyes. But selling your child to the pleasure houses in the pleasure district would actually be a good thing for a lot of people it sounds completely mad for us to say that but it, they knew that their child would get an education they would be uh, well fed they would be well dressed they might have the chance of making some money of their own and marrying well and all of this seemed infinitely better to toiling away and starving in the fields it's really difficult for us to get our head around that that could be seen as a good thing but um, it was for a lot of people. You say that the, the sort of geisha and kabuki, which have now been mm. sort of kind of given a sort of cultural aura of, and, and separated from their origins, mm. the, the origins of those was essentially in sex work. 
I think that we can say that. Yeah, I think that obviously now that they are they are different things and people take great lengths to try and maintain that distance. But all of those particular art forms and practices started in the pleasure district. It was women actors who performed in the kabuki to begin with, and they became so popular and caused such uproar with clients competing desperately for their attention that eventually a law was passed that banned women from being able to form in form in the kabuki and then young men took over and they just started selling sex as well so it was just it didn't matter what the authorities did but the geishas yeah they've got their roots in in the pleasure quarters absolutely they do i mean I, to go back to your point that you know there are these people sort of gladly selling their daughters into sexual slavery. Yeah. I mean, you know, th this is a book with many, you know, fascinating stories and beautiful illustrations and, and kind of a rich cultural history. But there's an incredible amount of suffering. Yeah. All the way through. There is. And, and kind of the, the, there is obviously now a sort of divide in feminism that, that says, mm. you know, a kind of wide divide. Half of which says, look, all sex work ends up necessarily being exploitation or containing exploitation or subjugating women's sexual agency and, you know, a right to independence. I mean, you seem to be on, on the other side of that debate. Is that, is that fair to say? Can you say, can you say why? I think when sex work is one of those things that it invites people to try and be very binary about it. They say it's either it's all horrendous exploitation it's all sexual abuse or they try and look at it as everybody's having a jolly old time and, and really everybody should be doing it and I think that what's actually required is a much more nuanced approach to that which is that all of those things are true at the same time it is such a varied and complex experience that you cannot have one definition that stands in for everybody but what I do know from studying the history is that criminalization and attempts at abolition do not help anybody. They do not help the people that are being exploited. They do not help the people that are there uh, willingly and having a great time. They do not help anybody. And it's possible to acknowledge exploitation occurs without saying that, with, uh, acknowledge that, but also understand that attempting to criminalize that further will not help that person. So, and how do you see a sort of, you know, if you were able to look forward to a utopian vision of how mm. sex work would be, you know, let's say in this country in 20 years time or in 50 years time, what what would it look like? How would it work? But we're really fortunate now that we're in a really, really lucky and defining time in the history of sex work, which is that finally sex workers have carved out enough space to be able to talk for themselves. And there are amazing activists and groups of sex workers and sex worker led organizations right now who are fighting at their cause for their rights. So they're the ones that need to be listened to first and foremost. I'm, the history of it is really important and I'm really passionate that that can be used to contextualize frame and debate today but it should be very much background context to sex worker voices today they're the ones that we need to listen to and the model that has been shown to be the least damaging is the one that they've adopted in New Zealand and New South Wales which is decriminalization so decriminalization is different from legalization legalization is what you is what we've got a lot of in the book that's the state going you can do it but you can only do it under these conditions 
So zoning, forced vaginal examination, all that kind of stuff. Decriminalization is the removal of laws specific to sex work. So it's still protected by, it's still illegal to abuse someone, it's still legal to exploit somebody, it's still legal to sexually um, put someone in sexual slavery, all those things. But sex workers uh, have the same rights as anyone else does to work under their own conditions. And that's the system that has been advocated by Amnesty International, by The Lancet, by all kinds of different organizations, because within those conditions, sex workers can unionize, they can fight for their rights, and the biggest thing that hurts people from the people that are having a great time selling sex to the people that are horrendously abused is the stigma. There's stigma around it. One of the mantras of the modern sex worker movement is stigma kills. And it really does. That's, where, that's the bit that we need to challenge. Decriminalization is a step in the right direction. But until we can tackle that stigma, people will still get hurt because they're scared to speak up and it'll force people underground. And I'll give you an example. There was a sex worker who was murdered in Scotland <clears throat> a few years ago called uh, Jessica McRae, it was terribly sad. She saw a client in a hotel and she, the client turned violent and she locked herself in the bathroom and she phoned two friends and she didn't phone the police. And then, then, and then he murdered her. Why didn't she phone the police? Because of the stigma, because of the law. If you had seen a client, there have been many people listening to this who have clients in their day-to-day -day life, clients that they meet up with, and if one of them turned violent, they'd phone the police straight away. But she didn't feel she was able to do that, and it cost her her life. That's the stigma that we need to challenge, because it, make, it forces people into science. It allows violence to flourish against sex workers, because we keep othering them as less than. It, there has been research shown by John Lohman, a fantastic Canadian criminologist that shows when newspapers start writing about sex workers in terms of like they need to clean up the streets we need to get rid of them violence against them spikes significantly because they're being othered as worthless as being bad people that's the bit that we need to get to so I think that in 20 years it'd be great if we had decriminalization it would be great if there was we could tackle that stigma and Sex work isn't like any other work in this, that most work isn't like any other work because you are having sex, but the people that do it need to be safe. They need to be safe, they need to be respected, they need to be able to report crimes. That's, that's what we need to do, that's, that's where we need to go. And I think that it's, you can acknowledge that there are bad things that happen in a system of criminalization and stigma and still be aware that the way to help those people is not more laws and more punitive action. Well, we shall see what happens. Kate Lister, <laughs> thanks very much indeed for your oh, time. pleasure. Thank you so much. Thank you very much for listening. We hope you enjoyed this podcast. And if you did, we very much hope that you'll subscribe on your podcast provider of choice and or rate and review us. Well, especially if you liked it, if you hated it, um, don't, don't feel you have to review it. And equally, if there's something that you wanted to ask us about something you think we could do better or something you enjoyed please do send us your feedback to podcast at spectator.co.uk